Welcome to The Naked Truth. Peace to you. Let's pick up where we left off. We're in the book of Matthew, just about finished with it. And let's see, we're at chapter 27. So without further ado, let's begin reading. Matthew 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. So let's just see what the religious people are up to. They're not up early to praise God or to make an offering in this case or uh, to see what they can do for the homeless or the needy or the poor. None of that. They're rising up early to see if they can take somebody's life. Shameful. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So they arrested Jesus and, and taken him to the governmental authorities. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So Judas now apparently has an attack of conscience and uh, realizes that I guess whatever he had in mind what didn't include Jesus being arrested. Um, but that's how it turned out, even though he plotted with the people who arrested Jesus. And he's taken back the payment that they offered him, the bribe, the inducement they gave him to betray Jesus, the Savior. So saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? You see to it. So it, his conscience has gotten to him and he's realized he's stabbed someone in the back, someone who didn't deserve it. And um, he's taken it to the religious leaders saying, look, I was wrong. And they're saying, oh, what do we care? They're telling him, that's, up, that's, that's on you. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So it's pretty clear here that Judas killed himself. He committed suicide, even though there are some preachers out there who tell you, oh, ignore that. That's not what actually happened. And they'll use Acts, the book of Acts chapter one, and turn that around and say that because it says there that uh, 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 how his body ended up that that somehow means that the religious people actually took his life. But it's very clear right here that he wouldn't hang himself. But the, and another thing that's clear is Jesus said before that the 12 disciples would have a place in the hereafter, as we call it, in the kingdom of God, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, not judging everyone, all of humanity or anything, specifically the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judas was one of those 12. So that lets us know that although suicide may be looked down upon by society in general, and specifically religious people who will tell you that if you commit suicide, that means you're going uh, to be damned. Jesus made it clear though, if you're a Christian, that's not the case. Um, and, but the, so Judas gave back the money that he was paid to stab Jesus in the back and he took his life. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. So they're not upset at the fact that now they've taken um, their whole plotting and planning has cost two lives now. Not at all. They're still more concerned with the money. They're concerned with what the money, where the where the money's going to go and how that's going to look according to the religious dogma. And um, that seems just about right for people who thump a Bible nowadays. Similarly, back then, they were holding on to their scriptures, but not for its righteousness. Uh, instead, they were holding on to it like a legal system to tie people up and force payment from people through offerings at the temple or synagogue. And they consulted together and brought with them the 
the potter's field to bury strangers in. So they took the money that um, Judas used, uh, that Judas returned to them for the betrayal of Jesus and used them to purchase property for the church or what we call church for their religious organization, the temple. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So they're saying here that that's how that area, that piece of property that they used to buy the um, to buy with the money they used to betray Jesus has then become a name of the field of blood, presumably because of the suicide and also the crucifixion. Then when then was fulfilled was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced. So they're reflecting back on. Oh well, might as well finish the prophecy. What it's reflecting back on from the Old Testament by reading chapter verse 10, uh, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So the writer here is saying that verses 9 and 10 are the fulfillment of an Old Testament, as we'd call it, prophecy from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 6 through 9, that Jeremiah there had a, apparently, they're saying that Jeremiah had a vision of when the Christ would be betrayed and um, stabbed in the back, and the price that would be paid for it um, more than 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you read in the book of Jeremiah, um, that's not exactly how it reads. It reads that Jeremiah used 30 pieces of silver um, that he'd set aside through the, his own experiences and troubles that he was going through and came back and claimed the property, the plot of land. Um, but they're saying that the prophecy that Jeremiah gave there, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy in that moment. Uh, that's what the uh, writers are the ones who who are carrying on the message of Matthew to us, um, believe that that was linked to. Now, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. So now he's on trial and that's the question he's being asked. Is he their king, the king of those people of that time? Um, and Jesus is, didn't um, say, yes, I am. And he didn't say, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Instead, he just affirmed what the governor asked him. And I think that's significant in the fact that it's um, it lets us know, just like Jesus tells us, let our yes be yes, let your yes be yes and your no, no. As far as making promises and oaths and swearing uh, oaths about things, that those are not what Christians are supposed to do. You're not supposed to swear at all, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. I think what he's saying, this is an affirmation of that, that just like when you're asked to swear to something or promise something, you can just say that yes, you will or no, you won't. And just affirm that, that in, that's the righteous thing to do. But when you go into making promises and swearing and making oaths, that you step in the sin. Because just like Jesus says, it's Matthew 5, 37. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Is letting us know that even that is is walking into a sinful path when you swear and promise things because we actually don't know what time will cause us to do or not do or what we will fulfill or what we will fail at. Um, so it's really not for us to promise to do those things. Just let saying you're going to do them be enough to make you do them. Don't you don't need to go with promises and swearing. That's the root of things like divorce and other contracts that get broken. 
And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So he didn't bother. He answered what the governmental authorities are demanding of him, the ones who are behind the crucifixion or a part of the crucifixion. But as far as the religious authorities accusing him of the stuff that they've brought up against him, excuse me, Jesus is paying that no mind. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So now the government is sort of um, backing up what the religious people are doing, which is basically uh, boosting up charges against him to take his life for something he said, nothing he did, but for something he said, which is kind of ridiculous, but it's what's going, it's what's happening. And um, it's also the same way religion sort of turns the head of politics now, especially in America, but all throughout the world. Religion, and that's different from what Christianity is, not actually walking in what Christ actually has to say, but religiously telling people what they need to be doing and making them follow that, whether it has anything at all to do with what Jesus has to say, and using that to sway the crowds, to move the crowd's heads and hearts, to make you believe that what they're telling you to do is what you ought to be doing and what's actually righteous, even if it's not, even if it's not even written, even if it's not even something Jesus even said. And yet it's what happens and it affects the people, put it, people placed in power through politics by turning their heads also and making policy to make and affect what people say and think are actually godly and righteous, but they may not actually be righteous at all, much less Christian. Um, but he answered him not a word, not one word, so did the governor marvel greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. So um, generally it sounds like one person was granted amnesty or pardon from the death penalty. Um, by tradition. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So Jesus wasn't the only one being um, executed that day or scheduled to be executed that day. Also, Barabbas was. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? So he's asking them, asking the crowd, how would you have it? Would you rather have the one who's the notorious prisoner or the one who's a notorious healer? Who do you want to put be put to death? He's giving them the choice. And he's saying who's called Christ, and Christ translates to anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, that their own religion prophesied to them would be coming. Uh, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So uh, the writer here is letting us know, or editorializing to us, that, that, that even the government knew that it's uh, personal reasons that they've actually arrested and surrendered Jesus to the authorities. Nothing at all to do with what it is he is being accused of. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. And she's saying, for she has suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So it's an example here of something that happened again and again throughout the Bible, particularly even starting back in the Old Testament, where it would seem that the divine would inter interact with humanity through dreams, messages and uh, orders, instructions, directions through dreams. And so it's saying here that even the government, the governor's wife was um, 
um, in touch with the divine and realized that it'd be wrong to have anything to do with having a hand in taking Jesus's life. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So again, the religious leaders, the religion, turning people's heads and hearts, getting them to do was actually wicked um, in the name of uh, religion. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. So he's asking them plainly, how would they have it? And they're choosing the, uh, it, in another uh, gospel, it says what Barabbas is guilty of is murder during a riot, during an insurrection, just like January 6th, guilty of taking some someone dying during that riot. And yet you see so far, the harshest sentence given out to all the people who've gone through the court so far in the January 6th rioting event, um, which was an attempt to overthrow the government, those same people who believe it was just and righteous to take the life of someone guilty of treason, which they believed, or at least said they believe um, the people in power were guilty of by not allowing the last failed president to be uh illegally reelected again, they believe that is a cause for, uh, that's a grounds for treason and that the punishment for that would be taking your life for that treason because historically that is the punishment around the world for treason if you're on the wrong side. But you see now that, like I was saying, all the people from January 6th, of all of them, the harshest sentence given out now, and I think five or six people died as a result of that day and that insurrection, that riot, the harshest sentence given out so far has been to a black person who wasn't even there, who just posted something online in support of it, which I still is it's still wrong. But is it wrong, more wrong to, from a distance, voice support for something when the people who burst through the gates there actually only get months or either probation or even allowed to just travel still? Like it's nothing. It's the uh, more proof of the racist uh, white supremacist system that exists in America and it's shameful flaunting of it. Just like I said, uh, when all of this started, it's going to show you just how biased the system is when you see what happens with the people who actually committed those, uh, uh, who brought about January 6th. Um, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, him, let him be crucified. So that shows you where the heart of the people is. Even though Jesus walked among them and only did good things, now, just that quickly, they've turned on him. If, presuming these are some of the same people who witnessed Jesus' deeds, this is all happening early in the morning. The arrest happened sort of in the middle of the night, according to the narratives in the gospel. So this is all happening pretty early in the morning when a lot of people presumably aren't even there or aware that it's happening. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. So uh, whether it's some of the ones who know Jesus's reputation or not, the crowd is convinced by the religious people that what Jesus deserves for his teaching and his other righteous acts, even though they're not acknowledging those, even though that's what they followed him around for, uh, is guilty of that treason that's what declaring himself would be a king would be considered or sedition. Um, and that that's what he's guilty of and that that's what he deserves. The same people who shout that and from January 6th don't believe they should get those same sentences. And so far, by Democrats and Republicans in power 
aren't being uh, aren't being treated the same way that they would as if they were on if the shoe were on the other foot if the roles were reversed they would they would be calling for their execution and yet they know that they aren't going to get that same treatment because of white supremacy so they are doing the things like January 6 knowing they're going to get a slap on the wrist if you're right if your wrist is the right color when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. So the governor realizes that the whole cause isn't righteous and he doesn't want any part of it. Uh, so figuratively, he washes his hand, he washes his hands literally to figuratively wash his hands uh, of the filth of having a part in it, of taking having a hand in the taking of the Messiah and the taking of the Messiah Jesus's life for unjust reasons. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on, they're saying on them and on their children. So if you've read with me before, just in case you don't understand, the reason I'm not reading it exactly as it says there is because if you read it as it says there, then you're saying his blood be on you and on your children. And you're free to do that. Um, but if you read Matthew 12, 37, you know there's uh, power in the things you say, and there's going to be an accounting for those things you say. And it doesn't say except for things in the scriptures or except for things in the Bible. It says that by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. So if you put the energy of your voice into saying those particular words, for an, as an example, there are many other examples of it. If you read with me before, you know what I'm saying, that um, you should be careful what it is you say. So if you say that, realize you're putting that out there. So there may be an accounting of that from yourself, from your family, from your children. So that's what they're saying, though, that they don't care about the repercussions of the taking the life of Jesus. And that, in fact, they don't mind reaping, the, the, the reaping what they sow with it even letting their children reap as well. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So he gave one prisoner amnesty or let set him free. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Jesus, he whipped, that's what scourging is, and uh, served him up to be crucified to the death penalty, as we call it. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. So now this is where the mocking begins and not mocking, just like cracking jokes and teasing, but mocking like it is, I believe, like it describes in other places in the Bible. For example, when Joseph was accused of mocking the king, the pharaohs or king's wife in the Old Testament, she wasn't talking about he was teasing or making jokes. She's talking about he was attempting to sexually assault her. It was a false accusation um, brought about to bring about a governmental response. Now you see uh, what I believe that mocking is talking about with Jesus. And I've talked about it before. If you want to look up, up a, a documentary, it's called uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. It'll give you an idea of just how quickly human nature turns, especially among males, men, when they're given just a little bit of authority and power over other men. So it'll give you a better idea of what more than likely happened with the whole mocking incident. and. This is an example of it, and they say, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So why would you need to take his clothes off of him if you're just taking him into custody? It goes to that whole mocking thing. But that's what they were doing to Jesus. Um, 
I believe, to terrify him, you know, as part of the, the, the experience of the, um, the mocking and being put in under human authority. When, uh, so he took his clothes off and, and clothed him in something else. When they twist, had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So in that sense, they're mocking him there also. They ripped his clothes off of him, put other clothes on him. So cosplay, uh, pretending like he's a king. And now they're um, saluting, as, saluting him as if he had the authority of a king over them, even though they're not recognizing his authority. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the, struck him on the head. So what we call police brutality. Jesus is experiencing that also. And for things he said, nothing he did, he did but what he, for what he said. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So after taking him through all that police brutality, now they've taken his clothes off of him once again and, um, and um, delivered him up to finish the job. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. So now they're drawing someone else into the experience of abuse and um, mistreatment of the Savior and forcing him to carry Jesus' cross. So that could be because the cross was very heavy, uh, but it could also be because they've abused him now and beat, beaten him and scourged him and whipped him. So he's probably less able to carry it all on him to own. And when they'd come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, so they've delivered him up to an area to crucify him in an area that looks like, or at least is known as, place of a skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So um, they're offering him up uh, some people will say it's for medicinal reasons so that he's, his suffering is eased. But if you're really concerned with someone's suffering, why would you scourge and assault and and whip them and be about to crucify them if you're really concerned with their comfort? But perhaps that's what it is. Or um, And some people will say it's uh, drugs, like in that sense. But whatever the case may be, whatever it is and their reasoning for offering it to him, it's saying here, he tasted it, but wouldn't drink it. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So um, casting lots is just like drawing straws or uh, rolling dice. It's leaving to chance how things will turn out. So they've sort of made a bid, an auction for the, the clothes that he had on. Some people believe among those, uh, well, no, that's another thing. Um, but before we move on about the um, wine, it's significant about him tasting it, but not drinking it in a sense that Jesus said he would not drink of the fruit of the vine, of that fruit of the vine again, until the kingdom of God comes. And that was before the crucifixion, sort of the last supper, as we call it. But he also tells us that for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So it's it's kind of uh, ambiguous whether at the crucifixion right now is has the kingdom of God come then since he's tasted the wine but not drank of it or since he said this fruit of the vine, fruit of the vine meaning the not 
the wine mingled with gall, like vinegar or something medicinal, but actual regular drinking wine, and that can be medicinal also. It could have been that that Jesus is referring to either way. Or, and the other question would be, well, when does the kingdom, of, when is it that Jesus is referring to the coming of the kingdom of God when he would drink that wine again? And because in another place, like I said, Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. So it doesn't, it seems to me if he's talking about um, the regular wine, and then he's not talking about him tasting the wine here or drinking it when he says he thirsts and they gave it to him to drink from the cross. I think what he was referring to there would be after the crucifixion, death and resurrection, um, when he came again and had fish with the disciples, um, you know, as just an example of when he was talking about the kingdom of God coming again, or he could have even been talking about in the second coming, as we call it, when um, after these 2000 plus or so years, maybe even longer, when we as believers believe he'll appear again, that that's the, when the kingdom of God comes. It could be any of the above. Um, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. So the guards are guarding him now from the cross. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So it's letting us know that's what he was crucified for. That's the actual official um, uh, law that they're saying he's guilty of offending and breaking and being the king of the Jews and being, so the sedition, the treasonous um, accusation, not for his um, preaching or his message or his healings. That's the official law that they're crucifying him for. Um, but that would be an offense to the religious people who are behind the crucifixion because they didn't want to accept him as their king. Because if they do accept him as their king, then that means all those prophecies that they've been taught and spoke, presumably teaching, um, would, would this saying he's the king of the Jews would say, oh, then that actually affirms he is the fulfillment of those prophecies that they've been teaching and supposedly preaching, that he is the Messiah that was to come. And look what they've done to him. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. So at least two other people also were um, experiencing the death penalty at the same time as Jesus. The penalty that Barabbas escaped thanks to the crowd's consent. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging, wagging their heads. So even in his suffering from the cross, still people are going by with their two cents of uh, condemnation and saying, you who destroyed a temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So now the people see he's suffering and they're saying, well, if it's true what you're saying, that you are the son of God, if you really are the king of the Jews, the Messiah we're, we're look, supposed to be looking out for, then uh, perform one more miracle for us as they'd seen the other ones and go ahead and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, so here's an instance of mocking where it is just using their tongue, saying disrespectful, shady things, um, teasing, mocking in that sense. He saved others himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. So now they're saying, okay, well, if the accusation that we've caused him to lose his life for is true, that he is the king of Israel, or as it says, the king of the Jews, 
Um, then they're saying, well, go ahead and perform one more sign for us and come down for, from the cross. And then that'll be enough to affirm our faith. Not all the miracles and, and healings and resurrections and exorcisms that he's performed. They followed him around and documented him performing and brought charges against him for. That was enough to convince them. But they're saying, well, if you go ahead and come down from the cross now, then that'll be enough. Then we'll believe you. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if you will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So uh, those are the words coming from the religious people behind the crucifixion. And whether they realize it or not, if we look back to Luke chapter 4, another gospel, verse 23, Jesus had already prophesied that that's exactly what they were going to do. In verse 23 of Luke chapter 4, he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. So Jesus is letting them know, at the, even from the very beginning of his ministry, when they first attempted to, to take him and kill him and throw him over a cliff, the crucifixion isn't the first attempt on his life. It's just the last one. Um, but even from then, Jesus let them know that that's what they were going to be saying, that uh, if you're so powerful, if you're the one, if you're the Messiah, if you're the king, save yourself. And there they are fulfilling his own prophecies right there all the way to the end or at least the end as they think it exists. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So he's even being condemned by people who are experienced the, experiencing the death penalty along with him. And we know from another gospel that at least one of the people um, uh, experiencing the death penalty with him being crucified also has at least some sort of change of heart before he dies on the cross. And Jesus lets him know that uh, he tells him, Luke 23, 43, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus lets us know there, baptism isn't necessary for salvation. It's preferred but not required, as we'd say. And um, lets, him, lets us know also that it's never too late to have that change of heart. Because even from the cross, someone had a conversion. Right, yeah, so Luke 23, 43, if you want to read more about that. Um, is where that happens. Um, now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. What we'd call an eclipse is what it sounds like is happening. Uh, one more sign in the sun and the moon and the stars, just like Jesus tells us, different things, different planetary events will be for signs. And as the Old Testament says, for signs and seasons, all the way back to Genesis, that that's why those things were there. That's why those planetary bodies exist are among the reasons those planetary bodies exist is for signs and seasons for us. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried. So if the sixth hour to the ninth hour would be about noon to three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama. So if you want to read the translation of it, he's saying that is my God, my God, why? And you'll see there, why has God forsaken him is what it's saying. And again, this is an example of, I'd be careful of saying that out loud if I were you, because you're putting your own voice and uh, energy into saying what's said there. And that means that there's a good likelihood that there'll be a time when God forsakes you. Um, just something to consider. But um, even that though is um, believed to be uh, a reflection back on Psalm 22. Um, of what Jesus is actually doing there is telling them or that they're fulfilling 
that um, prophecy from the Old Testament, as we call it, um, and what they're doing there and what's happening there. And I think in, in saying that, he's letting them know that if you want to get a big picture idea of what's happening, look back to your own teachings of Psalm 22, and you'll see that this is aligning with the suffering of Christ, the Messiah, that they are all, again, supposed to be supposedly looking out for their king that was to come and look how they're treating him. Some of those who stood there when they heard that say, this man's calling for Elijah. So even to the end, some of his teachings are being misunderstood and mis misinterpreted, even by those who are witnessing it. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, full, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. So here it is again with the wine being offered to him. Uh, he tasted it before and refused it. Now they're offering it to him again. Um, and just one other thing about Elijah that they think he's calling for, at least they say they think he's calling for. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet also mentioned um, who, according to that narrative, at the end of his ministry was carried off in what we call a UFO, a fiery chariot is the way it's described. Um, so UFO even are not something that's new. They've been happening at least since the Bible days. And you believe other religions, they've been happening for a lot longer than that even. Um, then the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So not just that person believed that, or at least thought that maybe Elijah who he was, is who he was calling for when he said Eli, Eli, Lama, you know, the rest of the statement. Um, so they're wondering, well, maybe Elijah will come again um, uh, from that UFO that carried him off to carry Jesus off. Um, they're wondering, well, maybe that's what's going to happen, how things are going to turn out. But Jesus, as we know, if we've, if we've read with before, Jesus has made it clear that Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist in something that sounds a lot like what we call reincarnation, that whatever Elijah's path was when he was carried away, at some point, that path turned to the path of John the Baptist being born and being the precursor to Christ's ministry, sort of the opening act. If you've read before, if you look at the, the reading called Reincarnation, it'll give you an, uh, it'll go with, you can walk with me through the verses, passages of the Bible that support why I think that's what he's talking about and what's being referred to here. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So, um, Jesus is suffering. And um, I remember my, when my mother was going through her uh, battles with cancer before she passed away, that she'd have those same painful sufferings dealing with ailments in her body. And um, it's letting you know the end is near. Um, so when Jesus passed away, it's saying, and he yielded up his spirit. So here it's not Jesus saying his spirit. It's spirit. It's the, again, it's the, purveyors of the message of Matthew that are letting us know it. And um, I only mention that because the definition of spirit is different throughout the Bible. Uh, and, and at least in the Proverbs, it says the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. So that's the actual, as far as I could find, a biblical explanation of what the spirit is. But Jesus lets us know also that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So I think to reconcile the two would mean the light that's in us, that searching for that good in what we say and do and how we are, 
that that's what's that's the godly part was looking for that light and some people just don't have that in them where like he says the lamp of the body is the eye if your eye is good your whole body will be full of light if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness so um i think that that's what the spirit refers to the part of us that looks for the light that is the light and looking for the good then behold the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split so uh, one more part about the spirit maybe that's also what jesus said with his eli eli statement that um his the spirit part of him was parting from the physical part of the body the division you know body mind spirit and soul that maybe that's the moment when the spirit was separating from the rest of what um, makes us and made Jesus human. Um, so then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. I think the significance of that is about the veil being torn from the top to the bottom, not someone standing at the bottom of the tall, broad, tall, uh, tall stage curtains and ripping them from the bottom up, but instead some force or energy from the top ripping the whole system uh, the veil, the covering of it, the division of it in two. So I believe what it's saying is symbolically that whole religious system of um, the veil separating the holy from the most holy and all of them being separated from the common people ended. That That's the end of that. Uh, commit a sin, get called out for with a legal site, with a religious ticket, or like a legal ticket, like you get when you're speeding and then making atonement for it by taking the life of some animal in the temple, which will cost you money to make uh, amends for it with God. I think that Jesus is letting us know, or this moment is letting us know that whole system is ending. Um, and we know that Jesus, that was one of the times that Jesus went off, uh, was on the religious people and that whole system of making uh, God's house a marketplace that um, letting people believe they can use money to pay for their salvation. The same thing these mega churches do now. They're not concerned with the poor and needy, storm survivors, uh, impoverished homeless people, mentally disturbed veterans, the legal system that goes after black people disproportionately putting the knee on the neck of black people and letting the people who do it get away with it while it doesn't happen at all to another segment of society and still thinking it's just and righteous and not speaking out about it. That whole religious system that makes it a business, that's the one thing Jesus went off on in all of his teachings uh, were the religious people and that hypocrisy. But So I think that that's part of what's being shown here, that all that's ending, that wickedness, that corruption is ending, at least in that chapter of it, because we know in around 70 AD, that's where that religion of the Pharisees and Sadducees ended when the city was surrounded by the Romans and conquered. And the graves are open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So now here it's saying, um, let me see, is it in that moment? Well, it's continuing the sentence as if it's happening in that moment that the resurrection of dead bodies or people who'd already died was happening, almost like you would think of like mummies. Um, or it could be talking in the spiritual sense that at that moment, a judgment happened for people who'd already passed away before Jesus's time. Some of them who believed that Christ would come, but still passed away before his ministry on earth actually began to place and culminated with the crucifixion and 
and, and then eventually the resurrection as we believers believe it to be, that that moment of him passing away on the cross is the turning of that page, the ushering in of that next era where the people who'd passed away would face that judgment. And now a judgment would happen, a judgment day for each of the people who passed away since then. And coming out of the grave, so that's letting us know. Um, I don't know if it's letting us know that their physical bodies came on out of the graves or that the spirits were raised from the graves and that they uh, met their judgment. But it's saying they appeared to many. So um, it appeared to them. It seems to me it's saying that it's the spirits that were raised out of the graves. Because if it were um, the bodies that actually raised out of the graves, they wouldn't just be appearing. They'd be visiting or going back to their lives with the people or whatever the case may be. So I think it's talking about a spiritual resurrection happened of the people who passed away up until that moment and where they um, entered a new era also. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that have, had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. So not the religious leaders, but the governmental authorities, the Romans, even recognize now, even though they're the ones who had a hand in the crucifixion, whether they, the governor washed his hands or not, he still is the one who could have stopped it, but didn't. Um, there, they even realized that the person they've, who they've executed was actually the divine. And many, not just divine, but the son of God himself. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar. So um, the people who were most faithful weren't the big, strong men, 12 disciples. We saw how some of them betrayed him and even took their life after they betrayed him, at least one of them. Um, others betrayed him and pretended like he didn't even know him three times before he was crucified. And those are some of the uh, star disciples or, you know, most known disciples. Uh, even did that Peter is who I'm thinking of. Um, but the women are faithful to the end, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's son. So Mary Magdalene is one of the female disciples who it says was exorcised of seven demons. Mary the mother of James and Joseph. James and Joseph, we know, are at least share the same name of two of Jesus's siblings. So most likely that's the mother of Jesus that is being referred to there. And the mother of Zebedee's son. Zebedee are, um, Two of the disciples, uh, Zebedee is the father of two of the disciples, two of the first disciples that Jesus gathered. Um, it was Andrew and Peter and John and I uh, forget the other one. Uh, but two of the disciples had the same father, and one of them was named, and his name was Zebedee. So, so letting, them, letting us know even their mother was along, uh, was there along with the other two women watching what happened to Jesus. Now, when evening had come, and we know the 12, the male disciples fled and forsook him for the most part. Some of them still stayed close by, like John, at least. And then Peter came back. But almost all the others, it seems, besides Judas, who took his own life, um, were just gone and hiding out and looking out for themselves to make sure they didn't end up the same way, it seems. Now, when evening had come. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So uh, this lets us know, even though Jesus says it's um, next to impossible, or, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It lets us know it's not impossible, but it's pretty hard. 
and Joseph is an example of someone who was wealthy, um, but faithful, uh, even though his, he was in the closet with his faithfulness. So Jesus let us know anyone ashamed of his words of them, Jesus is going to be ashamed when their judgment comes. I'm paraphrasing there. So it's not it's not clear how Joseph's fate will turn out. But we saw see in other apocryphal books, uh, gospel books that didn't make it into the Bible that Joseph had. Uh, some supernatural things happen with him. And you could read about them in the Acts of Pilate, another, like I said, a, a document that didn't make it into the Bible. And we've actually read about it here also, if you've read with me before. I'll try and get that posted also, God willing. So anyway, that's the same Joseph of Arimathea. And um, some preachers will try and say, oh, it's Jesus's uncle. The Bible never says that he's his uncle, never says he's his relative, but it says he's a, see, a closet disciple of Jesus. And um, and they'll say, oh, that's how come he claimed. Uh, well, let's keep reading. This, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. So they'll say that that's what proves that Joseph is Jesus's uncle, a relative of his, because he's claiming the body for burial. And that that makes him the kinsman, kinsman redeemer, or in other words, the nearest of kin to claim the body for the burial. But we know that's not true because we just read about uh, two of Jesus' um, mother being there who had two other sons who were Jesus' brothers. And we've read about the different names of Jesus' brothers. So we know that he had nearer, nearer kin to him family members who were closer blood relatives to him, in other words, who could have claimed his body other than his uncle, if G if Joseph were his uncle, um, other than him. So we know that that's just not true. That's just more religious stuff to keep people's heads turned into coming to into that religion, whether it's true or not. Um, and also his own mother was still alive. So maybe women couldn't claim the body, but we know he had brothers also and sisters. So Joseph would not be the nearest to kin. So that's not why he's claiming the body. But he is the one here saying who did claim the body. Um, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Um, so you could think of like a mummy um, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. I say think of it like a mummy because in another gospel it says that the women are going to, it may even say it in this one, that they're going to prepare spices for the burial. And Jesus even said that when one of the women came, one of Lazarus' sisters in one instance, um, but at least um, uh, one of the women in an in instance came and anointed his body, he said it was for his burial, letting us know that that's not the same way people, uh, some people of that same religion bury people now at all. It's the way Egyptian people, people in Africa buried people way back then. And, and I guess uh, presumably now also, I don't know, I would think probably just caskets down, but we knew that, that we know that that's an ancient form of burial in Africa. So that custom had to have be a part of um, at least some of the people who exist, who lived back then and their burial ritual to wrap people in cloth with the spices to help diminish or at least cover the smell of the rotting flesh that's died um, in the burial. So, you know, that's an African tradition, at least in part, that's lived on there in Jesus's burial. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Um, 
So, uh, wait, I'm, did I miss one? Uh, and laid in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So Jesus is buried in like a cave, and a stone is rolled up against the door of the cave um, as his uh, sepulcher, his uh, burial place. And um, the women also stood watching that and were near nearby when all of it was going down. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. So the religious people are right back at it, and they've gathered together to the governmental agency. Uh, let's see what for, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. So they know good and well when Jesus said about uh, talking about the three days, uh, destroy the temple in three days, I will raise it up again. They knew he wasn't talking about the physical temple synagogue where they worship at all, even though they'd used that as an accusation against him before the crucifixion. They knew good and well he was talking about his physical body resurrecting from the grave. Uh, and yet they pretended, they just lied. And now, now that it's convenient, they'll go ahead and use the truth to get something else they want out of the government. And one other thing, it says on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the day of preparation, according to the Old Testament, is the day before the Sabbath, when you're supposed to do basically lay up twice, do twice the work that'll be needed for things like food. Um, so that when that day comes, the Sabbath day comes, you don't have to do any work. It's already right there, prepared for you. And you don't have to worry about offending in that uh, that uh, dogma, that uh, law, that command to rest on the Sabbath. Um, so, and yet you see them gathered together on the day after the day of preparation. And it's strange that they don't say why they didn't just gather, why it doesn't just say on the next day, the Sabbath, which falls with the day of preparation. It doesn't say that though. So it almost seems like there must be some other day between that day of preparation and the actual Sabbath when they're supposed to be resting. Whatever the case may be, if that is the case, though, that may help explain how it says that Jesus was in the uh, grave three days, but that's a whole nother reading. Um, so now they've gone to the government and asking uh, with more plotting. Therefore command, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the, say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So now they have a lot of nerve. They're talking about deception. They just admitted that they knew what he, what he said about three days rising again had nothing to do with him uh, plotting to, throw, to overthrow the temple and destroy it at all. And yet now they're using that same deception. They're projecting, just like the right-wing religious people do now with their evangelicalism, projecting their own actions onto other people. And uh, so that you'll say, they'll say, look there, while they're doing what it is they're accusing other people of. Now you see them doing the same thing there, saying uh, they're afraid that those people are going to do something deceitful. Um, and by stealing him, even though the men, again, generally didn't, generally speaking, didn't even have the nerve to be present at the crucifixion, one even denying him three times before the crucifixion, they think suddenly those same disciples are going to get the cojones to come up and take away Jesus's body from where it's being guarded by the governmental authorities and watched by the religious authorities. They think suddenly those disciples are gonna get the nerve to show up and take his body in the middle of the night. So they're telling the governor, 
arrange for his his um his tomb to be guarded, so that um those those uh, believers his believers of his don't get away with fooling the people with um with the story of him being resurrected. Pilate said to them, "You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how." So it's letting us know that uh, the government goes along went along with religion again, and it's giving them what they asked for the authority to uh, guard the tomb of Jesus um, and make it more of their theater. And you see that still lives on today with the government continually funding wars, continually funding billionaire and millionaire socialistic uh, welfare while the poor, the needy, and those who actually could use the money uh, could uh, don't have any where it could actually do a whole lot for them, but instead continually funneling, funneling money to people who already have money to do more for them. It's sick. It's actually psychotically sick, but you see, it's nothing new. So the religious people got what they wanted from the government. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So they used the government resources that they requested and they're continuing their theater of pretending like the real threat are Jesus's disciples, not the people who carried out the crucifixion or something he said, not the people who followed him around looking for an accusation whenever they could, but instead the people who actually are, um, they're projecting it onto them and saying they're the real threat. They're the threat. And so they got what they wanted from the government and they're guarding the tomb of Jesus so that they can control the narrative. Speaking of the narrative, that's the end of this chapter. I appreciate you checking it out with me and hope it was a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. Since we're almost done with the Gospels because of all the shenanigans of people who are constantly watching for something and opposing, for whatever reason, this message even getting out there. It's not like I go through here cussing and swearing. It's not like I'm showing any nudity, regardless of what it is. Uh, my site says it's, that has nothing to do with what's being presented here. And yet I've been deplatformed from YouTube and from Twitch and having to do this again and again. But maybe it's for the greater good because now it's allowed me to put these up, even if they're just in the audio form right now, on my site, hungtgirl.com, of the archives of these different readings. So you can go back and see that for at least two years now, when I've been doing these readings, none of that's been happening, and yet I'm being deplatformed and opposed and very uh, covertly uh, blocked in many, many different ways that it just doesn't show. I know it may sound paranoid, but if you look back on the readings, you'll see that's exactly what's been happening for whatever reason. Because uh, again, I'm not, it's it's sad, but it's, it's real. There are powers that be and that don't want the truth to be known, even about something that's right there in plain sight, the gospels right there. And just in case you don't know why I even do these readings is because the whole Bible does get used that, the Bible does get used that way. There's 60 plus books in the Bible. And of those 60 plus, only six of them have anything at all attributed to words of Jesus, any quotes of Jesus, and they appear in that those red letters. That's where red letter Christianity gets its name. It's a tithe, a tenth, a tithe, as we'd call it, of what the whole Bible has to offer us, at least the American version. Only six books have anything at all of what Jesus has to say. So as a red letter Christian, that's what we focus on, what Jesus had to say. Since if you're going to call yourself Christian, why would you give anyone else that authority but Christ? So um, 
that's what we focus on. If you're interested in past readings and you're an adult, check out my website. It's free. It's hungtgirl.com. Um, and you'll see uh, about me, if you're curious about the messenger, uh, body, mind, spirit, and soul with the links on the left. And you'll see what we focus on here is the soul and the spirit. And for me, that boils down to Christianity. You can find the past readings there uh, in the archives under spirit and um, see what we've read about and how what Jesus says differs from what the rest of the Bible and absolutely from what the rest of religion even has to say at all, regardless of if they call themselves Christian or not. So um, I thank you for joining me. And we'll, uh, so I mentioned all that because since we're almost done with posting these, I think there's only five or six left that I have to redo again since this keeps getting blocked that um, um, I think we're going to do is switch up the reading schedule. The Gospels are almost completely covered now, um, at least in the readings. So once we finish them, maybe we'll do a shift on how we do these readings since there are more books that don't have Christian teachings in them that, than that do in the Bible. Um, so anyway, we have our readings of the Gospels on Mondays and Wednesdays, Wednesdays for the time being around 6 o'clock. And um, we have our Saturday night readings where we focus on Old Testament uh, reading scriptures uh, around uh, midnight, 12.15 a.m. Sunday morning, late Saturday night for those readings. If you're interested in joining me there uh, for those here on Zoom or on um, Anchor as where the podcast exists for the audio portion. I appreciate you checking it out and hope you stay safe. Love your neighbor, wear your mask, and wash your hands. God bless you. Peace to you, and I'll see you next time. Thanks again.